Wow. How many of you are visiting, you, someone is getting, is graduating in your family and you're here to see them? Wow. Well, welcome. I'm glad you're here and uh, hope you get to make it to graduation. <laughs> I don't know how many graduations we have. Uh, Bill and I start commissioning the students on Monday, so it's four graduations now. Four graduations and I think there's six or seven events that we're, we're at this week, so it's going to be fun. Well, I got to um, our, men, uh, our, our men's ministry called Men's Alive. Um, yeah, how many of you are part of that? It was, it was so beautiful. Today they, um, they had a retreat, and Mark Peterson, who's been leading that ministry for 10 years, the guys got together and they raised amongst themselves $49,000, and they bought him a brand new truck. Drove it out there today at, to the retreat center, and... And honored him, and it was really powerful. You'd kind of have to know Mark to actually understand the whole thing, but it was, he's a little John the Baptist-ish, and uh, it was great. And I, I totally forgot that I was supposed to go speak there. Totally forgot. So I knew I was speaking tonight, and I, had, I uh, drove home yesterday from speaking, and so I asked the team if I could have the, the morning off, and they're like, yeah, but I forgot that I was supposed to speak out there. So I wake up at, at 8.35 this morning, and I, I usually do my, my devotion. I read it off my, uh, off my phone, so I turn my phone on, and there's a text that says, you might want to bring a coat. kind of cold out here. I'm like, where? And I was supposed to speak at 9.15. It was 8.35, and it's a 27-minute drive. I got there on time. Two minutes to spare, actually. <laughs> Kathy helped me dress. <laughs> Forgot my underwear. But anyway, it was just a really fan... That was a joke, actually. But that was a great event. And there was... I don't know how many guys there are. It's kind of hard to judge how many people there are outside. But my guess is 100, maybe 150 guys. And the last thing they do, they do it every year at the retreat. They all take their shirts off and take a group picture. They're like, hey, take your shirt off with us and take a group picture. I'm like, oh, no. When I was 25, I'd take my shirt off gladly. At 40, maybe. At 62, ain't happening. Ain't not going to happen. Yeah, I'm stretching out to the right and to the left. I'm making room for the Holy Ghost. So... um, yeah, so, and then we were at the Father's house yesterday, which is in Vacaville. This is a fantastic church. Lots of our team have been there, and I just did a, uh, a one day, day and a half um, women's meeting. Them, I don't know how many, they must have had three, 4,000 women there. It was just crazy. And uh, yeah, there was a lot of estrogen in the room, I'll tell you. <laughs> I sort of like doing women's events, but usually you're the only, there's like four of you in the room, four men in the room, and it's uh you say anything, they just cry. <laughs> Not all of them. But anyway, um, yeah, I just, I just have this phrase running through my mind. I want to speak on apostles uh, tonight, and it's uh, a teaching I've actually done uh, several times here. I was preparing tonight, this afternoon actually, for tonight, and I really feel like, you know, there's so many people that are new in our movement, they just keep coming. And some of, our, some of the teachings that we do are kind of foundational. And we teach and then 
we're kind of like building line upon line and you know year after year and and uh, I feel like sometimes I was just noticing that questions that people ask in the last couple years feels like we need to revisit some of the foundations and I know Bill was doing that with the um, with the whole generosity message this last uh, this last few weeks so um, but I had this phrase running through my mind it has nothing to do with my teaching um, I think it might be for someone um, you know. Uh, In the world, we surrender when we lose. But in the kingdom, we surrender to win. And I don't know who that's for, but I feel like there's people in here that the Lord's calling you to give up. And you're like, oh, I don't quit. Well, there's perseverance when the Holy Spirit calls us to not quit. It's, you know, Luke 18. But there are other times when actually the best thing you can do is surrender. So, if, that's, if you feel like that's for you, just stand up and I want to pray for you before we start. How's that before we start teaching? Oh, lots of people. It's good. You know, um, those of you who are standing, when you surrender yourself to Jesus, you know, you can trust Him. I, there's a, Proverbs says, He's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. A lamp to our feet, that's a season when all you know is the next step. And then he's a light to our path. I like when the Lord shows us where we're going. That's always less stressful. How many can say amen to that? But there are seasons where the Lord is not about the journey. It's about the, 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 the person who's taking us, who's with us. It's, 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 a, it's about... Getting to trust Him. And I'm convinced that there are times when the Lord refuses to tell us our future because it's not about where we're going, it's about who we're going with. And these are seasons, like Abraham and Sarah, they left the Chaldeans to the place, God said, leave your father's house to the place I will show you. They had no idea where they were going, they just knew who they were with. And so for some of you that are standing, sometimes, uh, sometimes, Surrender is hard because you're learning to trust the one you're with. And so I just want to pray for you. And Father, I just thank you for these folks that had the courage to stand and the humility to stand tonight. And I just pray that you would guide them. That you would um, be a lamp to their feet. That you would illuminate the next step. That you would, be, that you would reassure them that you aren't just with them but that you actually have a strategic purpose for their life. And I bless what you're doing in each one of them, and I pray for you to remove anxiety and fear and all of those synonyms that kind of cause us to be uneasy about where, we, where we're at and where we're going. And I just release them to the courage to surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome, you can sit down. Thank you very much. Hmm. Is there someone here named Betty? She's got the name Betty just a minute ago. Is there someone here named Betty? Your name's Betty. Would you stand up if that's you? Don't come up afterwards. Because <laughs> I'll be mad at you. <laughs> I gave this whole word last Sunday and said, some of that, this lady came up later and she said, that's me, that's my name. 
That's the where I, that's what I was doing. That's what I do for a living. I just was afraid to stand up. And like, do you have a word for me? I'm like, no. I have this word for you. Is your name Betty? Hmm. Is that your name? Awesome. It took you a while to stand up, didn't it? <laughs> so did I shame you into standing? Is that what I did? You know, you, you try to use the Holy Spirit, but if that doesn't work, then you have to use guilt and shame. <laughs> hmm. um, uh, uh, three things. First of all, the Lord says that everything that you're concerned about, He's already taken care of. And in the next eight days, it's just going to all fit together, and it's going to answer the three questions you've been asking the Lord. And He is, he, he, he is, he is more concerned about your concerns than you are. So I'm supposed to tell you, like, no worries. Like, you don't have to worry about it. The Lord's already taken care of it. And he, is, he really likes you. He really likes you. And the compassion that you show towards the broken and the poor, he has remembered. He's remembered everything you've done. Um, you, know, you don't have a lot of money, but you give, you give, like, sacrificially. And you give of your time. And I saw you pull over for someone the other day and... And just uh, give them, uh, I don't know if it was a lunch or something you had in your car. But the Lord says, you don't do anything that I don't see. There's nothing you do that I don't see. And, you, and the Lord says that he is grateful for you. And that he, he has, is going to honor you. And the Lord says, whatever you do in secret, it's going to be shouted from the housetops. So the Lord said, your generosity and your compassion, they are laying a foundation for greatness in your life. And so you have to dream bigger. You're not a wallflower. You're not like, uh, you know, I kind of see you kind of like, no one's going to adopt me. And the Lord's like, oh, you were the first adopted. You're beautiful. Is she beautiful? So we just bless you in Jesus' name. Okay, so um, we're going to talk about apostles tonight. And uh, for some of you that have been here uh, a long time, obviously this is Will. I don't know if, I don't, I don't plan to say anything new at all, but I feel like this is foundational. I don't plan to say anything new, unless it's just being funny. Um, but I, I, I really feel like it's important for us to have an idea of where we're going, what we're doing. And I think for a lot of people, the kind of, um, the kind of, uh, Bethel's motives are often a mystery to people. Obviously to the world, that's okay, but often to other people too. Like, what exactly are you doing? And um, I had an encounter some years ago. It was actually the first year I came here because we were living in this little apartment uh, at Shasta Lake Apartments, Kathy and I, when we first moved here. And um, I used to, we had two bedrooms. I used to pray in this other bedroom. I was laying on the floor one morning, and, um, and the Lord said, we're moving from denominationalism to apostleships. Ask me what that means. <laughs> I'm learning to ask questions of the Lord. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, in denominationalism, people gather when they agree, and they divide when they disagree. Denominationalism, divided nations. How many know we're called to disciple nations, not divide nations? So the Lord said, in denominationalism, people gather when they agree, and they divide when they disagree. Um, how many know we're Protestants? That the word Protestant, it, at first, the word Protestant meant, was, was supposed to mean 
pro-Testament, as in Martin Luther was pro-the Bible. But within about three months, it came to mean protester. And when Martin Luther left the Catholic Church, obviously I have no opinion about that. Some Catholic historians and Protestant historians would probably have some opinions about how that should have went. But he didn't leave over social justice issues or over a conflict with, with, a, you know, with, a, with the Pope, it, it, in a personal conflict with the Pope. He actually left you know, the 95 Theses he, he nailed to the, the door of the church. He left over doctrinal issues. In other words, um, Protestantism was born in, a, in, a, in a, um, a doctrinal disagreement. And so, so the Lord told me, in denominationalism, people gather when they agree, and they divide when they disagree. But in apostleships, people rally around fathers, family. How I many you know in apostleships, they go, there's my dad, there's my mom, there's my sisters, there's my brothers. And the Lord said, I'm about to pour out revelation on this generation that's been held in the eons of ages on the, uh, in the vaults of heaven for the eons of ages. But if I pour out revelation on the wineskin that people gather when they agree and they divide when they disagree, it will actually rip the wineskin. Because how many understand that the first, the nature of revelation is that you have a new idea. And new ideas are not welcome in a wineskin where we need to agree. And by the way, if you gather in, uh, in denominationalism, and by the way, I'm not talking about denominations. I should have probably made that clear from the beginning. I'm not talking about denominations. I'm talking about denominationalism. It doesn't matter what it says over the door of your church. It just matters what it says over the door of your heart. And I would say the denominational spirit is just as alive in uh, apostolic networks in the 21st century as it is in any denominational church. So I'm not talking about what, you know, I'm a Baptist, so I, I fit in. I'm like, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Because it's not about titles. It's about heart. But in denominationalism, if we people gather when they agree and they divide when they disagree, and you're a shepherd in denominationalism, if I'm a leader of a denominationalism church, and people gather when they agree and they divide when they disagree, what do I have to make sure people don't do? I have to make sure they don't disagree. What's it take to have a disagreement? An opinion. What's it take to have an opinion? A thought. What do I have to make sure you don't do? I have to make sure you don't think. So I don't preach to inspire you. I preach to convince you. How many understand that in denominationalism, I don't preach to inspire you because if you start thinking, you'll have an opinion. And if you have an opinion, then guess what's going to happen? If your opinion is different than my opinion, then we split. The challenge is, well, see how deep we're going to go here. The challenge is, is that in denominationalism, if you disagree with me, how many of you know that I typically brand that as disloyalty? Because we're together because we agree. Therefore, you don't have permission to disagree with me. In other words, I tend to see how much you value me by how much you agree with me. <laughs> I'd like to suggest to you that you have permission to love anyone, no matter whether they agree with you or not. And that when you start to put a value system on people that you say, if you valued me, 
you would agree with me, how many know that you're going to manipulate people? Because the outcome of you have to agree with me if you value me is I talk to you to convince you instead of actually to understand you. I, uh, I'm going to say it anyway. See, think about this. In denominationalism, if I can't get you to agree with me, and I want you to stay in my congregation, what do I have to do? If I can't get you to agree with me, then I have to agree with you, because the only reason we're together is because we agree. <laughs> What's that mean? How many of you know that morality, the idea, the... <laughs> The concepts around morality, what is sin, is shifting in denominationalism. So that now we are we're even ordaining homosexuals. I don't have a problem with loving, in fact, have a problem. We, how many know everybody deserves to be loved? No matter who you are, no matter what you've done. Everybody deserves to be able to come into the church and be loved. How many know that when Jesus found you, you were a sinner? Forgetting that is a real bummer. No, I think sometimes we don't have compassion on other people because we've been saved so long we forgot where we came from. It's pretty important that we love everybody. That we love everybody. But how many know that I love you? That doesn't mean... Listen, love and agreement have nothing to do with each other. God so loved the world. He didn't agree with the world. But he loved the world. How many know Jesus hung out with sinners? I would say he didn't agree with their sin. But losing my virtues so that I can embrace you is not the kingdom. You're like, well, Jesus loves sinners. He did, but he told the woman who was caught in adultery, I don't condemn you. Listen to this. Go your way and sin no more. In other words, telling her to not sin anymore wasn't condemnation. It was love. And people are like, well, everyone deserves mercy. But mercy, that's true. How many know everybody deserves mercy? Everybody. No matter what you've done. You're a murderer. How many know you deserve mercy? But how many know mercy means you did something wrong? Grace, (laughs) mercy means you didn't get what you deserve. Grace means you got what you didn't deserve. If you're speeding, if you're going 50 miles over the speed limit and the police officer pulls you over and doesn't give you a ticket, how many know that's mercy? Mercy means you deserved a ticket. You didn't get it. If the police officer gives you $1,000 because you sped, how many know that's called grace? You got what you didn't deserve. That's not original with me. Someone shared that. But my point is, is that when people say, well, the adulterer deserves mercy. Well, yes, but the only way he or she can get at mercy is to actually admit they were speeding. They did something wrong. (laughs) You can't have mercy applied to you if you don't actually admit you did something wrong. You don't need mercy if you didn't do anything wrong. I'm saying denominationalism doesn't just affect churches. 
It affects the way we see the world. And now the world has picked up the spirit of denominationalism. And they're saying, you're a bigot because you don't, you don't agree with me. I'm like, no, no, I love you, but I have a I have different view of what morality is. You know, Isaiah said in the last days, they'll say, bad is good and good is bad. And I don't, you know, personally, I don't have a problem with the world being confused over what's right and wrong. That's the world. But when the church doesn't just accept people because they should, but when the church validates lifestyles that are clearly virtuous, that doesn't help the world, that confuses the world. And I'd like to suggest that the church becomes virtuous when we try to get everybody to agree with us and we, feel, and we lay a foundation that says, if you, if, you're, you know, if you agree with me, if you, don't, if you love me, you'll agree with me. And I'm like, how many understand how much pressure there is when you redefine love as agreement? I'm talking about in our own relationships. In our relationship with our husbands and wives. How many know that when we define love as agreement? Or how about this one? Loyalty. How many know that if I agree with you, you don't know if I'm loyal to you? Because loyalty is actually tested when we don't agree. So when I read... when I. T- I'm saying denominationalism is actually reinterpreting the scriptures. Denominationalism is saying, well, unity, I mean, if, we're, if we all agree, then we're in unity. But how many of you know it's called the unity of the spirit? Not the unity of the doctrine. I'm saying we're redefining terms to get people to agree with us. We're using, we're twisting the scripture to say, if you're a part of our congregation, then I'm right. And by the way, you have a right to my opinion, but to no other. And we redefine loyalty, unity as loyalty. And I'm like, no, it's the unity of the spirit. And loyalty is actually means I'm with you no matter what happens. I'm with you if I don't agree with you. I'm with you in hard times. I'm with you. I am connected to you. So I believe that we're going through this dramatic shift. And there are lots of tests to this new wineskin. So um, in uh, Mark chapter 2, this is uh, repeated actually in four of the Gospels. Jesus said, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine will be lost. And the skins as well. Uh, The question is, what is a new wineskin? First of all, let's talk about the wine. Jesus said, no one puts new wine... In old wineskins. What would the wine be? I'd like to suggest that the wine is, is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit's outpouring that intoxicate. You know, if you drink too much wine, then you actually are under the influence of the wine. <laughs> we're going to get to Acts 2 in a minute. But when the Holy Spirit was poured out, people thought they were drunk with wine, but Peter said, no, they're drunk with the Spirit. <laughs> I'd suggest that Wine is the intoxicating presence of the Holy Spirit. How many would like to have more Holy Spirit? <laughs> and uh, Bill's point is, you, you know, he gives the Spirit without measure. So 
How many understand that you can have as much Holy Spirit as you want? So what is the new wine? In, in, Mark chapter, uh, in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 18, Jesus... This is really interesting because oftentimes uh, the Gospels, the four Gospels, will repeat a same story, but the pretext and the post-text will be different. It's interesting that in every single case, the pretext, in other words, what Jesus said before he said, no one puts new wine in old wineskins, in every single case, it's the same. And here's the pretext. John's disciple and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, why do, your, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the old from the the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine in, in old wineskins. And then it goes on to say that. In other words, the pretext in every single case where Jesus talks about wineskins in the Gospels is why do your Pharisees, why do the Pharisees and John's disciples fast and your disciples do not fast? I'd like to suggest that the old wineskins were the, was, was leadership. The Pharisees and John represented leaders. <laughs> And Jesus, how many know Jesus is the new wineskin? In, um, in Acts chapter 1, we have all the disciples together. Jesus has you know, just spoke to them. He rose from the dead. He spoke to them. He told them to wait for what the Father had promised. And then in verse 14, it says, While they were with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers, at this time Peter stood up in the midst of them and said, of a gathering of about 120 persons, and said, Brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled with, the, with which the Holy Spirit foretold from the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who were arrested, who arrested Jesus. Verse 23, they put forward two men, Joseph called Barbaeus, who's also called Gustus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of men. Show us which one of these shall occupy the ministry of apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew straws and lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven. In other words, we always talk about that they were together in one mind and one heart, and they prayed. But not very many people talk about what the prayer meeting resulted in. The prayer meeting resulted in Peter having a prophetic word or maybe a revelation that they needed to take Judas's office and replace Judas with somebody else. I like this because they choose two men and they say, Lord, show us which one of these men shall take the place of Judas. And they actually choose straws. Now, I don't know how important this seems to you, but do you realize that the New Jerusalem, I'm going to read it to you in a minute, the foundation, the 12 foundation stones of the New Jerusalem have the names of the apostles on them forever? And they chose the 12th apostle through the drawing of straws? <laughs> I don't know. It's like, let's throw dice for it. Yeah, 
snake eyes. It's Matthias. But my point is this, is that after they replace Judas with Matthias, the Holy Spirit falls. The very next verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, you'll remember there was no verse numbers in the Bible when it was written, at least not in the New Testament. After Matthias, I'm sorry, after Matthias replaced Judas, then the Holy Spirit fell. Now, is it possible that the Holy Spirit's intoxicating presence was waiting for the complete government of God? Because in Revelation chapter 21.10, it says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God, her brilliance, it was like a very costly stone, a stone of clear, crystal clear jasper. And it had a high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates were 12 angels, and, the names, and names were written on them, which were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is interesting. Did you notice that the 12, the 12 uh, gates had 12 names, and it was the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel? When... Um, when, uh, when Israel, I don't know if this is interesting to you, but when Joshua crossed the Jordan River, do you remember they set up stones? How many stones did they set up? No, they didn't. They set up 24 stones. They set up 12 stones in the river, and they set up 12 stones at Gilgal. Gilgal is where they circumcised the men before they could come in to the promised land. Isn't it interesting that the New Jerusalem has 12 names of the tribes on the gates, but the foundation has 12 names of the apostles. Listen, we're going to finish reading it. And it says, um, verse 13, And there were three gates on the east, da, da, da. verse 14, And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Isn't that interesting that in the New Jerusalem, like in the city there are actually 12 foundation stones with the names of humans on them. That's actually holding up the presence of God. The throne of God is sitting on 12 foundation stones that are the names of the apostles. Is it possible that a new wineskin has something to do with leadership and government? That God doesn't want his spirit poured out on old wineskins, but neither does he want his spirit poured out on no wineskins. In other words, wineskins give, if you will, um, perimeters to the wine so that we have a river and not a flood. Practically, when the Holy Spirit falls on a congregation, we're learning. Like, do we have a role in that or should we just sit down and let Holy Spirit do whatever? I propose that we co-labor with Holy Spirit. I, pro- I propose it shouldn't be a free-for-all. I propose that the Holy Spirit's intoxicating presence is to be shepherded among the flock and not left alone. What is that? That's leadership. Oh, anyway. So, the Lord, so we're moving from denominationalism where we gather around truth. And by the way, how many know truth's important? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. We're not saying truth isn't important. We're saying relationship is the foundation. 
Covenant relationships are the foundation of the church. How many know the church was born in a covenant? You take communion. What are you reminded of? The covenant you made with Jesus. The, the church was born in a covenant, not in a conference. <laughs> it's okay. Thank you, Chris, for that. Malachi chapter 4, probably the most famous verse, well, one of the most famous verses in the whole, entire Old Testament. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and what? Terrible day of the Lord. And he'll restore the hearts of fathers to children and hearts of children to fathers that I, may, that I will not come and smite the land with the curse. So that I might not come and smite the land with the curse. What's the point here? How many understand that the prophetic... That the foundation of the church is apostles and prophets. What are, what are prophets? What's the prophetic role or one of the major prophetic roles in the New Testament? That Elijah would come and what's he going to do? He's going to restore hearts of fathers to sons and sons to fa- sons to fathers. How many understand that 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. What's the next verse? And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. What's the next verse? And we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, as if God was begging through us to be reconciled to God. My point is this. In the Old Testament, what did Elijah do? What, did Eli- what was Elijah's role in the Old Testament as a prophet? He called down fire. He killed false prophets. He stopped the rain. How many understand that he was kind of destructive more than constructive? But when you take the Old Testament prophet Elijah and you bring him into the new covenant, what does he do? Does he call down fire? Does he call down judgment? No, he actually reconciles families. How does he do it? By valuing, bringing value, bringing fathers and sons, mothers and daughters back to connection. I'd like to suggest that we're in the the age, we're in the apostolic age. We're in the apostolic age, and the first thing God wants to do in the apostolic age is restore the family. This family and families. And, I'd, and I, do you know that we are in the fatherless generation? We are in the most fatherless generation in the history of the world. Now let me finish. That did not lose fathers through war. There have been more fatherless generations percentage-wise in the First and Second World War, and some other times in history. But we're in the fatherless generation that did not lose fathers due to war. And I'd propose that Elijah's coming. That Elijah's here. That the spirit of Elijah is on the church, and part of that is reconciling the world to itself. That God is in the reconciling business, and he's not reconciling the world to an organization. He's reconciling the world to a family. How many know when God wanted to touch the world, he sent a son? He didn't send a boss. He sent a son. And when the son taught us how to relate to God, he said, pray this way, our father. Not my father. How many know I'm not called to, to talk to God as if I'm the only one I'm responsible for? My father who's in heaven. No, our father. Two things. One, Father. We're part of a, we got saved into a cosmic family. And it's not all about me, and it's not all about you, it's about us. It's about all you all. I'm saying I'm supposed to relate to God as if I'm a part of something bigger than me. 
I'm not supposed to be praying for just me. Of course you can pray for yourself. My, my point isn't that you can't pray for yourself or that God doesn't care about them individual. You understand that. In the context, I'm saying God wants us to think our. So when I'm praying for our daily bread and our, our trespasses, I'm not thinking me. I'm thinking all of us. Because I was born to be interdependent, not independent. Now, in the, in the body of Christ, it's interesting, Romans 12 says something powerful. <laughs> it's coming to me. It's just sometimes as you get older, it has to seep up. It's, got, it's still got the old wiring, you know? It's, I got dial-up. <laughs> Romans, says, Romans 12 says that we are individually members of one another. See, I don't lose my individuality when I become part of you. Uh, see, unity is not conformity. It's a celebration of diversity. I get to bring me, the real me, to you. And the real me with you makes, it's part of our family. I don't have to be you to be with you. I get to be me to be with you. Okay, think about this. Remember when they built the Tower of Babel? It says they exchanged brick for stones and tar for mortar. You're like, where where are you going? How many of you know that you're living stones? See, a stone has a shape. Each stone is shaped specifically. Through its course in the river, or its course... In, you know, maybe the stone wasn't in the river. Maybe it was in the side of a mountain. The point is, is that that stone's journey caused it to be a certain shape. So when I'm a stone, if you, have you ever, anyone ever done any stone work? I've done quite a bit of stone work in walls. You, you look for a stone that fits in that place. But how many know, a lot easier to lay brick. Because they're all the same. That's denominationalism. See, denominationalism... God didn't like it too well. God wants unity, but not the Tower of Babel. Where they, rest- where they exchange stones, no, bricks for stones. See, God doesn't want the church to be stones. I mean, sorry, bricks. He doesn't want, like, we're all the same. Listen, you want to be part of us? Believe this, do this, do this. Okay, well, you don't believe that? Okay, we want you to stay. We'll just change what we believe. Bricks. Are you following me? The church is not living bricks. It's living stones. You get to be you. And listen, if you don't find your place in the body. Let me say it differently. There's a place in the wall only you fit. Only you fit. If you try to imitate somebody else, how many know you're not going to fit in the wall? (laughs) Because the wall has a place just for you. So if you spend your life being someone else, you're like, I never fit. You never fit because the place in the wall was for the original. Not for the copy of Eric or Bill or Chris or anybody else you might admire here. You're not supposed to be Chris. You're supposed to be you. 
When you get to heaven, God's not going to say, why were you not Moses? Why were you not David? He's going to say, why were you not John? Why were you not Mary? Do you get the idea? I'm saying, God is not looking for conformity. He actually made flowers. Years ago, I saw these flowers growing up in my bedroom window. And I was, it was Saturday morning, and I stayed in bed late, and I was just kind of just thinking and praying and writing my journal. And I said, God, why did you make flowers? And I'm thinking, I'm going to get this revelation, like about the ecosystems of the earth. You know, because like Washington Carver asked God about peanuts. I'm like, this is going to be good. Why did you make flowers? He goes, because I think they're pretty. No, let's be real. There was probably other reasons why God made flowers. But the reason he gave me is because he thinks they're pretty. You can't eat them. Some people smoke them, but you're not supposed to. I mean, God didn't say, I I made the flowers so you would smoke them. No, he said, because they're beautiful. And let's face it, if if flowers have another purpose, he could have made them all one color all white, all yellow, but he made them all different sizes and shapes. My point is, God loves art. God loves creativity. He's the master creator. He loves creativity. He's, he loves you being different. I'm saying denominationalism kills creativity. We're, living, we're all living bricks. We're all the same. No, it's actually in diversity that we find the beauty of God. Now, maybe back to my original point, or one of the points I made, I think. How many know that doesn't mean there's not absolutes? It doesn't mean there, 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 there aren't morals and standards. And Well, I believe Jesus is Lord. Well, I don't. Oh, well, it's okay. <laughs> I remember one time, we were in Weaverville, and we used to have an open mic. It was a smaller church, and we often would have an open mic where people could come to the front and share a prophetic word. But there, there was a gatekeeper. Usually it was me or one of, the, one of the team. And Bill would be up on stage, and, and somebody would come up, and, and Bill would, you know, like I would see if what they had to say was not just good, but wasn't relevant for where we were going in the morning. You know, most, mostly it was like, is it in track with where we're going with the service? This one lady comes up. We had never seen her before. And... Um, she says, I, I have something I feel like God's put in my heart. I said, okay, well, what is it? And she shared something. I don't remember what it was. So Bill's kind of looking down. The worship's kind of going. And, and so I'm like, okay, give her the mic. So Bill gives her the mic, and she said, I just want to say I really love it here, and I believe that my God should get together with your God. <laughs> and Bill looks down. I said, that is not what she said she was going to say. When I'm talking about denominationalism and, and, not being, and apostleships, and I'm saying that in apostleships that we don't have to agree, listen, I'm not talking about relative truth. I'm not talking about, like, you know, there is an absolute, so there's no morality or there's whatever. I'm simply saying that we can have a different revelation about the non-essentials and hang out together and be a body. And 
Furthermore, we can reach out to people in the world who totally don't believe anything we believe, and we can love them just as much as we love the person who agrees with us. And what I'm getting at here is that denominationalism doesn't just affect people, our people. It doesn't just affect the way believers interact. It, always, it also affects the way we interact with the world. And I'd like to suggest, I know this can be taken wrong, so just remember who's saying it. No, don't even remember that. That could be worse. <laughs> Bill's like, no, that'll make it worse. Evangelism sometimes uses the tools of manipulation to actually lead people to Christ. And I, I think, how many know the ultimate answer for the world is everybody needs to love Jesus and be born again? That being said, when I should have permission to love whomever, without the pressure of converting them. I don't know if I fully agree with that, but I mostly do. I'm saying that the world, most of the world, especially the Western world, views us as car salesmen, and they're on a parking lot, and we interact with them, and we're like, oh, we love your shirt. Yes, we love, oh, yes, we'd love to be a part of the city. Oh, yes, we love, I mean, you know why most of the people in the city who don't know God don't want us involved? Because they get that we manipulate them to lead them to Christ. Quote, lead them to Christ. I mean, I'm under pressure to pray the prayer. So someone, if you hang out with somebody who's something different than you, a homosexual or someone living together or, or something else, and they're, they're like, have you, have you, did you pray the prayer with them? No, I just love them. Oh, well, and I have to try to convince in denominationalism, if I'm hanging out with people who think differently, if I'm hanging out with unbelievers, I only have permission to do that if I'm on a mission to get them to think like us. And I'm saying, I don't think that's the Lord. I just have a hard time. Jesus going to a wedding. People are drinking pretty much. I mean, they drank so much, they drank all the wine that people anticipated they'd drink. And like, dang, we're out of wine. And Mary's like, oh, Jesus will fix that. And Jesus makes wine. And they're like, wow, most people save the good wine. They serve first. And then when people are drunk... How I many you know when you're drunk, you just drink gallo. You got four bucks a gallon. You don't care what you drink. I wouldn't know because I've never drank. <laughs> but, but my point is, is that you don't waste great wine on people who are drunk. But Jesus did. Now you're like, well, he was there so he could. Okay, all of you drunk people, I made the wine. Raise your hand if you'd like to receive me. I made that wine so you would receive me. I understand, ultimately, he wants everyone to receive him. But there's just something broken about that. But I'm saying, like, in denominationalism, there is pressure. There is pressure to get people to agree with us. I like people raising their hands to get saved. That's how I got saved. Led some folks in salvation 
a week ago. Saw a whole bunch of people get saved at the women's conference. Raising their hands, coming forward, praying, getting baptized. Everybody good? But raising your hands and praying a prayer is not in the Bible. No, I'm good with it. It's just extra biblical. Not anti-biblical, it's extra biblical. Is it possible that we have people repeat a prayer sometimes because we need people to agree with us? Here, pray. How do I get saved? You agree with this prayer. You believe Jesus Christ died on the cross. Listen, I believe those things. I'm simply saying, like, in the, in, in the book of Acts, they just got baptized. <laughs> you want to follow Jesus? Yeah. Okay. Well, get baptized. Am I supposed to read the Bible? There is no Bible. <laughs> Couldn't read it if there was one. I'm saying, Bible's important. How many Holy Spirit's pretty important. In the, in the lives of believers. Well, I don't think that came out right, but we'll just leave it there. The Lord said to me that denominationalism is like the concubines of old. And the Lord said to me, you know the difference between a concubine and a wife? Remember kings would have like, they would have like 400 concubines and like 10 wives or 20 wives or 30 wives. And the Lord said, you know the difference between a concubine and a wife? Of a king? No. Well, the concubines didn't carry the king's name and none of their children had an inheritance. That's denominationalism. How many of you know, in the kingdom you belong? There's no such thing as a nameless, faceless person in the kingdom because God knows your name, you have a face, and he knows how many hairs are on your head. I'm saying, you're not just a mass of people. You're not living bricks. You're living stones. You are individual. You're important to God, both as an individual and as part of the bigger family. But my point is this. In the Old Testament, do you notice that God corrected kings for adultery, but he never corrected them for concubines? In the beginning, in Genesis 1, and Jesus repeats this in the Gospels, in Genesis 1... Uh, and Genesis 2, I'm sorry, how many know that God decreed that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, the connotation is one, and become one flesh. And in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that that husband leaving his wife and cling, uh, her, his, her, his father and mother and clinging to his wife and then becoming one is actually is actually a picture of Christ and the church. Paul says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking to Christ and the church. What I'm getting at is one man, one woman, connecting together, being married. That was the original plan. But how many know the kings had many wives and many concubines? And they got corrected for committing adultery outside of those kind of relationships, but they didn't get corrected for having multiple wives and having multiple concubines. I'm saying God allowed something that wasn't his idea. And I'm saying denominationalism, God allowed, but it wasn't his idea. His idea was always covenant. Okay. Where are we going? 11 minutes. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to change gears. Apostles. What are apostles? 
probably uh, one of the most asked questions um, during question and answer time with our students are like, hey, what's an apostle? Well, first of all, um, the word apostle was um, sometimes people ask, well, why are there no apostles in the Old Testament? Well, one of the reasons why there's no apostles in the Old Testament is because the word was yet to be invented. So the, the word wasn't invented till about 200 years before Christ. It was actually invented. The concept was actually invented by the Greeks. And of course, it meant sent. It meant sent or sent one. But the connotation wasn't like, I send you out. It, the connotation was, I send you to a place to reproduce in the place I sent you to what I sent you from. So the place I send you to looks like the place I sent you from. So the word doesn't just mean you go out. The word means you go out to culturize. Are you with me? So the Romans, when Jesus walked the earth, of course, the Romans were leading. They were, they were ruling Rome, where the, uh, ruling Israel, where the Jews lived. And so, um, and so the Romans were conquering. They were very much like Hitler. They, they had this vision to conquer the, the, the entire known world. And you know the adage, when you're in Rome, you do as the Romans do. So the Romans were going out and conquering. But as they were conquering, they would come back to the cities they conquered. And the cities were back to their old ways. And the Romans said, why are we conquering, but we're not culturizing? So the Romans picked up the Greek idea. And they said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to send our, we're going to, we're going to commission some of our commanders, some of our, our generals. We're going to commission them as apostles. And we're going to send them out, of course, with the military to conquer. But with the military is going to go politicians and teachers and philosophers and, and artists. And you get the idea. So that we're going to conquer and then we're going to culturize. We're going to conquer and culturize. So that was the, the Romans did not think up that idea. But they did actually use that idea as um, they, they actually put an, an, you know, an activity to that idea. So Jesus, in the days of, of Christ, when he walked the earth, you'll, you'll, you'll remember that the, the Jews were under Roman rule. So uh, the word apostle was a very secular word. Like It meant something different, but kind of like our word CEO. So when Jesus, when he promotes his learners, disciples, to leaders, it's interesting what he called them. He could have called them priests. You'll remember there's a whole Levitical priestly order. Jesus still lived in the Old Testament. Could have called them priests. He could have called them prophets. There was the whole company of prophets in the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. He, he, he could have called them patriarchs. There was 12 patriarchs and there was 12 disciples. But instead, he takes the secular word of the people who are literally ruling them. And he said, you, you know those guys who are always trying to get us to act like Romans? You are my apostles. And then he gives them an apostolic prayer. What's the prayer? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where are you seated? Heavenly places. What's your job? Your job is to bring earth to heaven. Heaven, heaven to earth. Either way. Probably works both ways. Your job is to look around heaven... See the culture of heaven. Learn the culture of heaven. How many know you can't bring heaven to earth if you don't experience heaven? So, first of all, how many know you're, you're, when you receive Jesus, you're all going to go to heaven? But how many know the emphasis of Jesus wasn't getting you to heaven, it was getting heaven in you? And by the way, if you get heaven in you, you're going to go to heaven because you're in heaven. Something like that. 
I'm sure there's other dimensions. But my point is, is that that prayer is an apostolic prayer. That it would be on earth as it is in heaven. So he says, I sent you out. And what, was the, what were the disciples supposed to do? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and say the kingdom has come near you. How many know they were on the earth to extend the kingdom? How many know they didn't preach the church? They preached the kingdom. Jesus said, I'll build the church. And the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against it. You extend the kingdom. 127 times, in one way or another, Jesus tells the disciples, or in the book of Acts, extend the kingdom. How many know we build the church and wonder who's extending the kingdom? If you spend all the time building the church, how many know you can't extend the kingdom? I'd like to suggest that all the church is in the kingdom, but not all the kingdoms in the church. This is part of the reason why we see that why we, we, we call people laymen, like you're in lay ministry, because we see the ministry as the church. And I'd like to propose to you that the ministry is the kingdom. And as soon as you receive Jesus, you became a minister. You're part of a royal priesthood. How many know there's no layman in the church? Well, I'm a mechanic. You're in the kingdom. And your job is to what? You're being sent out. You're being apostled to do what? To bring the kingdom to your business. To extend the borders of the kingdom. Everywhere you go, the king goes. You're an open heaven. The angels ascend and descend. You're like Jacob. You're the house of God. You're Bethel. (laughs) You're not just Bethel because you're Bethel. You're Bethel. Even when you go home, you're still Bethel. You can't leave us. Once you come here, you drank the Kool-Aid. You're always Bethel. My point really is, is that you have been apostled by the Lord. You are to, send, you're to go out and extend the borders of the kingdom. The culture of the king is inside of you. The kingdom within you becomes the kingdom around you. It always begins inside out, doesn't it? But if you get the kingdom in you, the kingdom in you will become the kingdom around you. You take Joseph, you take Joseph... And I understand it's a little different, but the metaphor still works. You take Joseph, you put him in a prison. What does he do? He makes the prison a palace. Why? Because you can't keep the kingdom inside somebody. The kingdom spreads. It's just natural that the king, whatever you cultivate around you, in you, will be spread around you. This is an apostolic, we're in an apostolic age. What's the apostolic age? God wants to take the kingdoms of this world. And make them the kingdom of our God. This is where we're going. The goal is to see cities transform for God. Isaiah 61. You know the verse. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me. To preach the good news of the afflicted. Bind up the broken heart. Speak release the captives. Freedom the prisoners. The favorable year of the Lord. The day of vengeance of our God. To grant all those who mourn in Zion. Give them a garland instead of ashes. A mantle of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness. That they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Next verse. Then they shall return and rebuild ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations and rebuild, get this, ruined cities. What happens when the kingdom gets in you? Then you have a responsibility to the city around you. This is the king and the kingdom. Isaiah 60. Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord is written upon you. Behold, deep darkness will cover the earth. Deep darkness of people, but the Lord will rise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. Nations will come to your light. Kings of the brightness of your rising. What happens in, in verses 18, 19? And 
Kings will come bringing their wealth. The wealth of nations will be turned to you. What's he talking about? He's talking about cultural transformation. He's talking about the apostolic mission. How many know that this is an apostolic generation? (laughs) We've come here to change the world. Make disciples of all nations. This is our mission. This is the mission if you should receive it. You're part. You're not just part of a family. You're also part of a kingdom. (laughs) I know. It's a good word. (laughs) I have three minutes. I I think I'll skip the teaching more. 30 pages to go. (laughs) It'll be a series. I'll finish it someday. I feel like we're supposed to like commission you. How'd you like to be sent out? Like I'd like to be sent out. Yeah, that's what we should do. Why don't you stand up? You know what I like about prophetic and apostolic ministry? Is we get the privilege of commissioning people. I believe that's part of the mission of a prophet is to commission people. In the Old Testament, the prophets commissioned kings. And I think it's part of what we get to do. Like, we actually get to metaphorically knight every one of you. Bill's going to come with a sword. He's going to stay tonight. You're just going to touch each one of you. And I'm going to go and pray in the upper room. As I intercede for the basketball finals. You know, when Moses, in fact, where I was going tonight was apostolic authority. Moses is up on the mountain. Joshua's down in the valley. They're fighting the Amalekites. I'm sure you probably at least have probably at least heard the story. Moses lifts his hands. <laughs> this is just my idea. Maybe God said, oh, lift your hands. I don't know. Maybe he yawned. Oh. The Bible doesn't say. I like the yawn part. He yawns. All of a sudden, Josh starts winning. Losing. Winning. Aaron. Her, come here. Winning? Losing. Winning. Winning? Winning. See, there's something that happens. And my, my next session will be on apostolic authority. See, I think you come, that in order to be commissioned, you come into submission to a mission, and you get commissioned. See, I think people are like, I think there are Joshua's that are building bigger armies and wondering why they're still losing. When all they have to do is hold up the arms of their leaders. But part of the challenge is in denominationalism. It, 
it's not even denominationalism, honestly. In 20 and 21st century, it's okay to talk bad about your leaders. We have talk shows. That's, the whole talk show is about talking bad about our president, whomever it is. And we've learned that we, we, we have learned something that's not true in the kingdom. You can't disrespect people and have authority. Some people, and this is a little exhortation, but some people don't get it that they go to church or they watch it online or whatever, and then dinner time is about critiquing the pastor, and you wonder why your children have no respect for you. Because you've taught them not to respect authority. Or you have Fox News or CNN or your favorite news program on where they talk bad about political leaders, about the leaders of our nations, and we have, you have that junk on all day long with your teenage kids in the room and then wonder why your kids talk bad about you. And I'm simply saying is, I'm going to commission you tonight. The ones that it's really going to fall on are people who are actually know how to be in submission to a mission so they can get commissioned. Because you only have as much authority as you submit to. Well, God, the Lord is my shepherd. That's just a nice way of saying no one tells me what to do. And no one tells me what to do. Works in the world, maybe. In fact, I don't even think it does. I mean, just go to school in any university and say, I'll come when I want, I'll go when I want. And they're like, well, you'll go now. <laughs> Isn't it funny, like, we'll pull over for a police officer we don't know. But we won't work in the nursery when our pastor asks us to. It's funny to me that people... What people will, you know, they'll, they'll go to work for a person who doesn't know God. By the way, that's all great. Just hear me all the way up. Maybe you work for UPS, you know, you in a brown uniform. You look like a big chocolate bar. You come to work when they tell you. You go home when they tell you. You wear the uniform, they tell you. You, you, you take on the dress code, they tell you, for money. It's just funny to me that people will do for money what they won't do for love. And they come to church and like, no one, you know, the Lord's my shepherd. And the connotation is, no man has authority over me. Then they go to work on Monday for a person who doesn't know God. And do everything they say for money. And tell me they have a problem with authority. Well, I don't, I don't believe in an institution. We're not talking about mental, we're talking about... The church. Sorry, I guess I did give you a five-minute message. Because I really do honestly want to commission you, but I know how this works. In order for this commissioning to actually be on you, you actually have to have a humble heart. You actually have to actually respect leaders that are human in your life. So I'm going to pray for you, but I know who this anointing will fall on. And by the way, it's always that way, right? It's the humble and hungry who actually get it. So you can put your hands out. This is uh, Bethel's kind of like receive mode. <laughs> I think it started when, when, during the renewal when we used to say, give me a barrel. <laughs> so Holy Spirit, you told me that we were to commission people with an apostolic commission tonight. Not that they're apostles, but they're on an apostolic mission. And that is that the kingdoms of this world would become the kingdom of our God. So I pray that wonders and signs and miracles would happen through them 
to extend the borders of the kingdom, but so would unreasonable love and courage. I pray for unreasonable love and unreasonable courage to flow through them, that you would give them unusual, that you give them unusual wisdom, and that you would give them unusual boldness. And Lord, I just bless every single person here and those who are watching by Bethel TV. And Lord, I pray that you said that the hungry and the humble will know the kingdom. In fact, you said that the humble will see the Lord. And so, Lord, we just release this anointing on every single person who moves in humility and who submits to authority in Jesus' name. And you say, I receive that for myself. Don't be surprised if something powerful happens to you at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. Don't be surprised is that if you wake at 6 tomorrow and something has shifted in you and you feel different and your motives are different and your motivations are different and your passions are different, don't say, I don't know what happened to me. Go, oh, that crazy guy, he prayed for me last night. Because I actually believe that at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning, Something dramatic is going to shift in many people, and you're going to find that you have passions for things. Some of you have had prophetic words that you don't want to do. You're like, that's good. I don't really want to do that. And tomorrow morning, it's going to be like something got activated, and you're like, the only thing I want to do is that thing God told me I was going to do 10 years ago. There's a couple people in here. You've been running from God forever. I don't even know why you're in here. No, you don't know why you're in here. I know why you're in here. And God is shifting your motivation. God is changing what, what you're alive for, why you're alive. And I believe that tomorrow morning, probably tonight, but I just have this word in my spirit. As it's tomorrow morning, something powerful is going to shift in you. And I was thinking about this verse in 1 Samuel 9. Saul, is in, Saul encounters Samuel. And Samuel says to him, he lost his donkeys, and he said, your donkeys have been found, but it's important that you stay till tomorrow morning. Because tomorrow morning, I'm going to tell you all that's in your heart. And the next morning, he anoints him as king, and his whole life shifts. He doesn't even want to be king. He just wants to be a shepherd. But in the morning, the Lord shifts his occupation and his passion, and he becomes king. And I believe there's something about tomorrow morning for many people in the sound of my voice. So why don't you just say, I received that for myself too. In Jesus' name. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're going to invite a team up here tonight. We're going to do a fire tunnel tonight. If you've never been through a fire tunnel, you've got you to stay for the fire tunnel. Just, just go through once. You can go through more than once, I think. But if I could just have a team up here. Gabe, I think you're going to lead this. God bless. Well, well, let's thank Chris. That was so good. Well, you all got commissioned, and we want to actually lay our hands on you. So here's how this works. If, you, if you're a guest, I know there's a lot of them here uh, tonight. We make two lines right down the middle, two, two separate lines. We'll get the uh, prayer team set up here. When the music starts, you kind of come down the middle, and you work your way through, uh, through the tunnel, and, uh, and we'll pray for you on either end. Uh, we have in the east-west room, if you could just be with me really quick, in the east-west room across the way here, right through that hallway, we're going to pray specifically 
for anybody that needs healing in their body. So after you make your way through the fire tunnel, uh, there'll be a ministry team in the east-west ready for you to pray. Give us just two seconds. We'll get set up. Lance and Tom are here in the front. They're going to they're gonna help out. You guys can go ahead and play the music. Two lines down the middle. Here we go. All right. joining us. On our website, Bethel.com, you can find our pastor's itineraries who may be visiting a place near you. Havilah Cunnington will be in Carrollton, Texas, May 10th through the 12th. And Denny Silk will be in Oak Park, Illinois, May 12th through the 14th. Now we want to hear from you. If you have any prayer requests, you can email them to pastor at Bethel.tv. Our team would love to pray for you. And be sure to send us your testimonies as well. We've recently heard a testimony from a Bethel TV viewer in Iowa. In 2005, she was forced to have a hysterectomy by her husband. In 2011, she remarried and they started the adoption process. In April 2015, she had a dream and saw herself holding a baby. Shortly after, God gave her the baby's name, Hope Ann. That summer, she and her husband were asked to adopt a little boy, but God clearly told them, no, her name is Hope Ann. In October, she was watching Bethel TV, and Chris Valentin prophesied that someone listening on Bethel TV had a hysterectomy and was going to adopt a baby by that time next year, and she felt the Holy Spirit confirm that it was her. A few weeks later, she got a call from her social worker saying that she and her husband were chosen by a pregnant mother to be the parents, and four days later, the baby girl was born, who they named Hope Ann. She found out later that the time she had the dream from God was the same time the birth mother was turned away from having an abortion. God has a beautiful plan for your life, and we release hope over you as you wait for his promises to become evident in your life. Thank you for watching Bethel TV and joining us and our Bethel family around the world. We hope to see you again soon.